elected to govern them. Leadership, as Plato pointed out, must be rested in those who know. And those who know, know one thing primarily, that the entire universe is subject to immutable laws. Keep the rules and live, break the rules and die. It is as simple as that, except you can't really die. Death, in this case, means the destruction of the illusion. And if all you have inside of yourself is an illusion, then it may appear to be a hopeless end. But actually, that thing inside, that mysterious seed, the soul seed, does not die. It cannot. It can be delayed. It can fall upon bad ground. And it can be, for some reason or other, taken away by the birds of the air. But that the seed itself cannot cease. So somewhere we've got to make peace with reality. If we don't make peace with it, we're not going to get the results that are necessary. But how are we going to make peace with it, whereas in the moment our entire life and thought is based upon transitory, impermanent, and inconsequential attitudes. How is the average individual uh, to become capable of ruling himself, let alone ruling anyone else? Well, this should be part of education, but it isn't. It should be part of everything that we do, but it is not. We are constantly being schooled to do things to perpetuate our mistakes. We have a standing army to perpetuate our hatreds. We have everything we can think of to perpetuate a kind of egotism, self-centeredness, or hopeless and ruthless ambition. We are not trying, really, to make any basic correction. We are competitively trying to prevent someone to, from doing to us what we have been long waiting to do to them. All this we cannot solve anything. So comes a sacred art, an art maybe that was founded in the ancient temples of Egypt perhaps earlier, an art which is re recorded in the ancient Hermetic writings, the, the books of Hermes Trismegistus, found in the scriptural writings of all peoples, this mysterious secret art, secret science of personal redemption personal renovation of character and of life. And uh, it means that certain changes have to come about. Now, in the Orient, there was a very elaborate system of esoteric discipline set up to help the individual uh, to cure these deficiencies in himself, to build up a personal integrated being a personality, a character, a temperament, a disposition, a unit within himself by means of which he can gradually come into the realization of the soul potential locked within him. This uh, type of discipline and so forth, however, has run into bad times here in the West for the reason that it is being cultivated, at least in some cases, simply as a means of advancing the same ignorance as it is supposed to overthrow. It is not being done because the individual wants to understand truth. It is because he wants to be wiser than someone else and benefit by it. So wherever these um, exercises 
are given to help the individual to be greater than his neighbor, danger lurks. If these exercises are to release him from those things which he has never corrected in himself, it's bad. If, however, it is a simple desire to find truth, not for self, but for the common good, then there is legitimate progress to be made. But all this progress begins with very simple things. We have these powers. We have within ourselves this seed of eternity, this tremendous dynamo, this enormous, incredible current of life. And just as a house is lighted by electricity from one great station, so our own individual magnetic fields, our electric selves, are all fed by the energy from one eternal plant. And that eternal plant is the divine life. But that energy is living energy, conscious energy, wise energy, loving energy, and not simply blind force. So in order to ma manage and work over these problems, the individual must begin his own alchemical uh, researches. Of course, as in the older days, he will be ridiculed. And in many cases, the alchemist was persecuted. Some of them were actually died for their beliefs. There were martyrs in all fields of human regeneration. But still, regardless of all these things, uh, we have to go on to try and find a way to reaffirm our own total unity, the unity of all that lives, that we are of what Buddha called a vast commonwealth, that we are a kind of cosmic commune in which all existing things are citizens of one life principle, one life world. Visibly, we can't see it as so small. If we had the eyes of Bami or Emanuel Swedenborg, we would see it because it extends beyond all conception. It is more vast than the vision of Dante. It is a tremendous situation in which could we see this cause, it would no longer be a tiny little thing that we can't find. It would burst into something that covers the universe from end to end with eternal effulgency, filled everywhere with life and meaning and reality. Now man, as uh, St. Thomas Aquinas has, been, uh, has taught, is equipped to handle this. It is possible for the human being to become aware of the totality of the life of which he is a part. He must grow up to this, but until he grows up to it, he must continue to pass through the tragedies of ignorance. We are all going to make it, there's no question about that. But we can make it easier if we know what we're doing. And we can make it easier if we say to ourselves, for instance, that in our own inner life there is a stream of life. There is a mysterious river that flows out of paradise. There is this mysterious source of life, this energy that we're going to use every day. We're going to use it to learn to walk. We're going to use it to learn to speak. We're going to learn it and use it to build a house. We're going to use it for all kinds of labors. This one great energy. 
and we are releasing it little by little. Because if we released it all at once, it would destroy us. It would be far too great for this body to maintain the challenge of a wisdom far more perfect than itself. So we only gain a little insight at a time. But we can, by a little effort of our own, become aware that we have a responsibility to the fact that we are alive. Nothing is here for no reason. Everything has purpose. Each individual, when he reaches maturity, has become a custodian of life. He has become part of a great living mechanism. He has become part of a tremendous flow of energy, energy which he cannot master, but which he can learn to use. As he uses it, he no longer abuses it. And when he gets to the point where he can transmute his own mistakes, where he can begin to see the things he did not do well and try to do them better, when he comes to this condition, he is already well on the way toward an enlightenment. Now, what are the immediate fruits of this enlightenment in terms of alchemy? Those who possess this uh, power, this mysterious elixir of life, who are masters of the golden stone, these individuals still live here just like everyone else. They are forbidden by the rules of their orders to even reveal that they are different. They live in this world, but not of it. They have a tremendous life inside themselves and are not dependent upon the encouragement of their neighbors for survival. They cannot be captured within the framework of a bad law. On the other hand, their wisdom and insight shows them how they can live surrounded by laws that are not good and still be right themselves. Actually, the alchemist is no longer just a citizen of the country in which he is born. This point was well made by the Greeks and by uh, many of the ancient peoples. Namely, that it is a mistake to assume that there are only certain realms in which the human being can function. There are not only the gods above of the Greeks and mortality below. There are something in between. The, this in-between thing uh, has been in theology made into the hierarchies of the angels and archangels and so forth. But in the classical times, there was a state between uh, mortality and divinity. And this was the state of the heroes. The heroic state. Or as Rosa, Juan Rosicrucian said, there is a race that exists on a plane above us made up only of those who have been born into it through their own wisdom. And they are called the servants of the generalissimo of the world. So this uh, race, so to say, this superior order, this heroic order, is composed of those who in this world have achieved freedom from negation and have dedicated themselves with those who have gone before to the, to the ultimate service of all that lives. These heroic powers, which we develop through our own integrities, become the basis of a release from the mistakes that have been made. 
Once we have this correct inside knife, we know why things happen to us. We are no longer moved by the things that we call joy and sorrow. We live in a state of truth in which all things have their own right and natural existence. We are not subject to any of the calamities that befall ignorance because we are no longer ignorant. And no matter what is done with civilization, no matter how many laws men pass to improve each other's condition, suffering, sorrow, and death will endure as long as the causes of them have not been corrected within the plan of things. So in alchemy, as we see it, <coughs> we can face into a great many interesting and remarkable facts. We can say uh, something that primitive people, for some unknown reason, have long sensed. Uh, sophistication has been a blinding factor. When we began to overestimate ourselves, we underestimated everything else. And when we began to think of our own magnificence, we forgot that we are tiny pebbles along the shore of a vast ocean. So that uh, we have to gradually get back to a certain simplicity. Nearly all primitive peoples have encountered one level of, rela of relationship with life that is important. One of the, they don't understand everything. Perhaps they are merely shamanistic peoples. Uh, but they do, most primitive people, have a realization of the tremendous integrities of some power, something greater than themselves. On various levels, they interpret this power. To some, it's ancestor. To others, it's totem. To some others, it's the beloved dead. To still others, it is monodos, or great ones who walk among the mountains. But in every case, these people have a natural esotericism. They have natural mystical qualities, which they have not outgrown by sophistication. Now, it's true that these faculties are genuine in many instances. And it is also true that they have gradually dropped out of sight. Well, the answer to that is also understandable. The reason why primitive psychism has gradually faded away is because it again became a blind alley. Primitive psychism kept the individual from actually realizing the realities. It was a kind of protection it was as though parents were taking care of children and the child turned to the parent for everything or turned to the teacher for everything. But after a while, the child grows up to the point where it must make its own decisions. It must no longer lean or depend. It can no longer depend for its survival upon some benevolent power beyond its understanding. It must actually learn to stand, to, to live, to become a being, and transmute, transmute negative natural relationships into positive natural cooperations. It is not enough that we should believe in a summer land beyond the grave. It is that we should have the intelligence and the intellect to use all of our extrasensory perceptions as nature intended, service, to use them entirely uh, to help to discover this divine reality which is the end and goal of our search while we remain in the human stage of development. So
So we have to keep on working with this problem. Dear, we have a lunch and we eat something. And this something mysteriously gets absorbed, transformed. Uh, we don't tell the stomach what to do. Sometimes we put it in a position where it can't do anything. <laughs> Under such conditions, it becomes a little resentful. <laughs> then we bring out the bicarbonate of soda. But all the processes of the body, from the beating of the heart to the nutrition of cells, everything that happens within this uh, a circumference of our skin is incredible. It is a miracle upon miracles every moment. There seems to be no way in which we can explain the wisdom of body cells that we can actually re realize the conscious cooperation of tissues. We cannot understand these things because in some mysterious way our mind has sort of outgrown being a small cell and we are now interested in trying to be a greater cell somewhere else. But actually, the miracle of existence is present to us every moment. It is present to us in the birth of every child that comes into the world. It is in us in every proof of the continual principle of life that is transferred from one generation to another. How, we do not know. We can see only certain physical symptoms, symbols, procedures, but the great transmission of life is beyond human understanding. Therefore, we are, have a little world, a little island of thoughtfulness in a great ocean of the unknown. We are constantly seeking to know more, but because of the peculiar dulling of our instruments, we have gradually turned away from the search for the unknowable to the gradual refinement of things that we do immediately see some value uh, coming from. But actually, this one thing that we don't see is the only thing that is important. It is the basis of law. Within it is the absolute way in which everything has to be done. Within it is the proof of human growth. Within it is the release by which the individual gradually, step by step, actually grows up into a divine nature. And sometime in the infinite of things may be a God in his own right. But all these things are based upon a, an energy, what the alchemists called the spirit or souls of the metals. The souls of the metals can be brought together. And here is a very interesting point. Uh, Von Welling, in his uh, Opus Cabalisticum, points out that no metal can be combined with another metal in its present state. One gross metal cannot be amalgam to another gross metal in terms of alchemy. Before an element can become mingled with another element, it must be sublimated itself and its own individuality overcome. It must cease to have separateness before it can be united with anything else. Therefore, the essences of the metals can be combined, but the bodies of the metals cannot be combined. To form, that is, they can be combined on a physical level for purposes of hardware, but not in terms of mystical understanding. 
So before an, uh, before any uh, form of knowledge can be united to another form of knowledge, both of these elements must be subjected to and reduced to their principle. Therefore, we have to go behind what is known. We have to break through knowledge in the sense of tradition. We have to break through knowledge in the sense that it is a binding power. We, when we say, I know, and what we are really doing is quoting from a text from Harvard or, or uh, Oxford, this won't do it. None of the knowledge that comes from the outside, in its natural outside form, can be united with any other form of knowledge on the outside. Therefore, before knowledge can be united with another form, it must be reduced itself or elevated to the state of a soul principle. It must be transmuted in itself from body to soul. Souls can mingle, bodies cannot. Therefore, all knowledge, before it can mingle with other knowledge, must lose the errors in itself. It must be re relieved of the traditional limitations which the mind has placed upon it. We must no longer defend schools of thought, because these thought schools can never be reconciled. But if thought can be re rescued from schools, it can mingle with other thoughts. It is the same as true in religion. We cannot take one religion and impose it upon another because the separatenesses are all artificial. We take two great religions. We study them. We discover that in substance and essence, their teaching is relatively identical. We realize that the Ten Commandments are everywhere in the world. And as long as we think of them as principles, we can understand and apply them. But the moment we t limit that pattern to a religion, and another religion disagrees with us, though believing the same, we then come into religious hostility and persecution. We cannot worship God separately and be at the same time one in our religious consciousness. When we, however, get over the sectarian fact and face into the divine reality, all religions can meet. We can all meet upon the level of certain principles, but never after these principles have been embodied in various creedal and sectarian patterns until they have become practically mummified in them. Die, have they died in the sectarianism, which destroyed their power to be one. So if we want to get one religion in this world, a religion in which all truth is available and for the end forever, of the problems caused by religious differences. There'll be no more inquisitions, no more crusades, no more fighting even in family life over religious memberships. If we really have religion, we're safe. If we have theology, we're in serious trouble. And it is the same with everything else, languages. We need more languages, but we need to realize that someday we're going to have to find what the ancient Aya people found 10,000 years ago, that there is a root language. And when we understand and know that root language, we can all communicate with each other. It isn't necessary to take lessons in a dozen languages to become a great linguist. It is only necessary 
to find the common root of, of communication. There is one, but we haven't found it yet. There always has been. In medicine, there is only one art, the art of healing. There are all schools of medicine. There are all opinions. Much of it developed by laboratory research. Much of this is useful. No one denies it. But nearly all of it is limited to fighting the problems of the body. We take sickness and try to cure it. If we had the common understanding of the alchemy of healing, we would not have to cure it because we would not cause it. It is con We are fighting constantly to get over our own mistakes. But if once somewhere along the line, this principle of unity can take over and we can find in oneness of character and conduct a, a great release. We get a shadow of this, of course, even now in the things that are happening. We are being warned against certain indulgences and certain mistakes. Medical science says if you don't take on uh, cocaine, you're not going to have to suffer from the consequences. Well, this is perfectly true. But there should be something else deeper that prevents the individual from even considering the use of cocaine. It is not a matter of curing against a whole public uh, mass of people who want to do as they please. The problem is that there is one right way, and that right way transmutes all the mistakes that are dependent upon that particular right way. So in politics and in all these problems, we have to realize that there is a divine government. There is a government of realities. There is a government which we have all been seeking for a long time. And to gain it, we have to realize that this government is the same thing exactly as that which we must impose upon ourselves. Our own bodies contain more living units than inhabit the earth at the present time by many, many times. Yet we have no great problems with them because they are occurring within a disciplined pattern. The same way we have to discipline society. There has to be a relationship between man and nature. What we should be striving for every moment is to find the ways by which all complications are resolved. This is the transmutation process. Selfishness must be transmuted. It is not destroyed. It is given a form of idealistic regeneration. Every fault that we have is a virtue misapplied. It is something that should be done differently. But we don't destroy energies. We simply give them an opportunity to express the best of themselves. So this alchemy probably is going to go on for a little while during the present century and into the century that is yet to come. We are beginning now, and while it's not easy, we are beginning to realize that we cannot do exactly as we please. But if we insist on trying to succeed at the expense of everyone else, we will all fail together. This is not the way it is done. It is not that we are here to get all we can. We are here to give all we can. We are not here to dogmatize. We are here to learn. And education is the problem of the gradual search for the sovereign reality. And this sovereign reality has always been a matter of the highest spiritual development. It is something in which 
here and there one will arise, born or cultivated, by who by own his own or her own inner values becomes aware of the facts. And uh, maybe not yet has anyone been aware of all the facts. But we are gaining step by step the first big lesson. And that is that there are rules, the game of life, and these rules are not made by human beings. These rules are inherent in the life principle itself. We cannot misuse life without sorrow. We cannot take something that is intended for the common good and try to apply it only to ourselves so that we may have special profit. This will not work. So we watch around us. We see things that a lot of people feel very unhappy about. But we also realize gradually that our own fumbling is becoming unendurable. We are in trouble every minute. We are in trouble because we have gradually complicated our mistakes. When we were a small group of people living on a large planet, our mistakes sort of faded away. Everyone took his mistakes to the grave with him. Now, however, these mistakes are being circulated through one nation after another. All of a sudden, we are one vast family. We are in a one humanity in conflict and stress with parts of our own family. Everywhere, the struggle for survival has been multiplied in, in its intensities, and the survival idea has been lost. We are all struggling not for survival, but for domination over others. So this keeps on going, and all of a sudden it looks pretty, pretty bad. We can see now what we couldn't have seen 25 years ago. And actually, this is growth. We are now uh, bewildered. We are intimidated. We are at loss. We do not know what to do next. We do not know where to turn for instruction. But we are therefore in the condition of the prodigal son, who has wasted his substance in riotous living and has now repented and is trying to find his way back to his father's house. And this is what we're all doing, whether we realize it or not. We're all trying to find the way to correct the mistakes that exist. And the mistakes exist are scientifically controllable. If science would gradually try to find out exactly how the great sovereign energy works, why it works, and what universal life is attempting to do, if science would give this more thought and could find out just even a little more about what the purpose of things is and get over the idea that man has been hopelessly isolated and must find out everything for himself and must build a world according to his own desires in a universe ruled by immutable law which can never be broken. Anything that attempts to break a law is broken by it. If science, then knowing its exactitudes and being able now to make ships that will go to the moon, headed for Mars almost immediately, if someone can bring this point home, that the one great answer that we must find is why we are here, what we are here for, and how we can work together to fulfill a purpose that we can never dominate, 
what we can venerate, recognize, and cooperate with. We can only realize there are not many ways of doing it right. We never have the freedom of choice that we think we have. For each individual, finally, there is only one possibility of choice, and that is to choose what is inevitable. This uh, understanding can also begin to work in our lives. We can get over a lot of the pressures of family, a lot of the inconsistencies and inharmonies of daily existence. If we try to the best of our ability to live according to the life within us, and this life says this is only one, and all others have it. When we speak of another, we are speaking of another self. We are speaking of ourselves. I remember the little story from Japan when uh, I was there, talked to a Japanese, and we saw two men bowing frantically to each other in the lobby. And the friend Miss me says, you know, this man, that man over there is bowing, is a nice fellow. And this other man he's bowing to is a rogue. Why and why should a good man bow to a rogue? Well, is the man, my friend said, there are two reasons. First, this man is a rogue, but behind that rogue is God, regardless of what he does. Because if it wasn't, God wasn't there, he'd drop dead in his tracks. Therefore, there is a divinity in him, and uh, this is respected even if his conduct is not. And he says there's a second reason also. Bowing is good for the stomach. <laughs> So the least you get out of it is a little help. And with a little help like that, we can go a great way. And by gradually trying, at least, to bow to the truth as we confront it, and making every effort to overcome every dividing factor in our lives, and trying according to the best of our ability to recognize that with us always is a power that we should respect and venerate that this unseen guest is the source of ourselves. And we may not see it for a long time, but we know its presence. And the more we know about it, the more we respect it. And out of respect comes love, and out of love comes obedience. So if we all work it out the best we can, the universal transmutation will take place. Well, that's it, folks. <laughs>